Surviving Bob Jones University of Christian Cults is a thought-provoking podcast series that delves deeply into the history of Bob Jones University, the psychology of fundamentalism, the criteria for cults, and survivors' experiences. BJU is a controversial religious institution, and this podcast sheds light on the experiences of those who have survived this high-control environment. Please subscribe to stay updated on the premiere of this podcast, which is coming in 2023. people and welcome to I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Always good things happening on this show, but Troy, I would like to say hello to you first. How are you going? I'm going well, Brian. I'm doing really, really well. It's actually a cold, wet day in Melbourne, which is where we're recording, and I'm all rugged up. Oh, you got your little Nana blanket on your knees. That's lovely. I haven't got Nana blanket on my knees, but I have got Kmart tracksuit on. I'm wearing my Kmart tracksuit. Oh, the house of Kmart. I've got shorts on and ducted heating turned up. <laughs> so can't wait to get the bill. It's going to be good. But anyway, Troy, enough of our little heating tips for the audience. Go to Kmart, get yourself a rug. We are not sponsored by Kmart yet. But not yet. Not yet. Hoping this takes us there. Troy, tell us about our wonderful guest today, who is a, f- a friend of the pod. He is a friend of the pod. We've got Stephen Mather, who is a former Jehovah's Witness. He is now an organizational psychologist and co-host of the Cult Hackers podcast, on which we have appeared. If you remember, we're on in 2021. So a big hello to you, Stephen. How are you doing? Hello. Very happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Just want to say the sun's shining through the window here in the UK. So um, I feel so sorry for you in the cold, damp. Uh, Australia. Oh, sorry, Stephen. When I say cold, um, you're from England, so I probably mean a balmy summer's day. Let's just well, it be is clear. All relative, that is true. Yes. And, and, and it is showering rain and around about 21 degrees here at the moment. Wow. So, oh, okay. yes, that is lovely. And Stephen, one thing we should note before we do kick on with the conversation with you is your daughter, Celine, who you post, host your podcast with, mm. is not with us tonight because she's out and about. And so we're going to be just talking to you. Yeah, that's right. She's um, she's on holiday, uh, going on holiday this week um, to Yorkshire. So um, she's very excited about that. So uh, Yeah, she's not with us, but obviously in spirit, uh, she's with us, as they say. Sounds like she's crossed over, but but moving on. She's not with us, but she's here in spirit. Amen, amen. Actually, if she was a Jehovah's Witness, she wouldn't be with us. She'd be sleeping somewhere, wouldn't she? Indeed, yes. No, uh, no belief in. Well, it's complicated. Maybe we shouldn't get into all of that. But yes, um, you're right. It's uh, it's not the hope for most Jehovah's Witnesses to go to heaven. Yeah, they they hope to live forever on earth. That's the uh, that's the hope. Yeah, well, we had Bart Ehrman on recently, and he was telling us that is, in fact, the biblical the biblical mm. thing. So tell us about your podcast. You've been doing this now for a number of years. How's it all going? Yeah, it's going, it's going really well. We really love doing it. I mean, when we started, 
um, we started during lockdown, which I think a lot of people did during the pandemic. So we kind of wanted to do something and a podcast seemed like a good idea. And uh, originally it was, we were called, what should I think about dot, dot, question mark. Um, the idea being that we wanted to just explore lots of really interesting topics. So what should I think about this topic? What should I think about that topic? And the fact that it was son and um, father and daughter rather was a kind of interesting dynamic because obviously we'll come from slightly different perspectives, have different views on things. But it soon became clear that, I mean, I always joke that the most interest, I'm quite a boring person. The most interesting thing about me is that I grew up in a cult, you know. So you, you can't really do a podcast without mentioning that fact. We kind of got into that discussion, including my upbringing and how I sort of thought about things and made sense of life after coming out of the group so it became more and more about that topic until in the end we thought well being that we're pretty much talking about cults and coming out of cults and understanding cults and so on then maybe we should change our name so we changed our name about oh was it a year ago perhaps perhaps less um to cult hackers um just to sort of reflect that that is the content but still we like to it's not just about, oh, look at this strange cult over there and look at this strange cult over here. It's, it's primarily about understanding, I suppose, the psychology and the the way that cults operate and then making sense of life when you leave. So, yeah, we've we've enjoyed it and we still enjoy it. We keep doing it because we love it, really. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, when you've been in those groups, how even years, decades after you leave, it still has a massive impact. And I don't want to say dominates your life, but it's still a massive theme in our lives. I mean, I don't know if you know, Brian and I have a podcast where we talk about similar things, right? So <laughs> we, we get it. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And there's room for podcasts and shows that that I suppose look at the weird and wonderful aspects of cults. And of course, there are those things but most people in cults are are just normal people of course and they've found themselves either through being recruited or being born into a a system of belief and a system of thinking that is different to the majority so and it comes in all shapes and sizes Um, sometimes it's religious beliefs sometimes it's more secular but these are all very interesting so even just from a purely academic perspective it's really interesting to see how people behave in these different in these different groups so yeah lots to lots to dig into one thing that's interesting Stephen is when we were on your show we weren't calling great big AOG which is the assemblies of God in Australia now called the Australian Christian churches we weren't calling them a cult when we did your show and since then we had this epiphany and excuse me using religious language, but we did. We had this <laughs> this awakening where we both were sitting at dinner one night at the end of the first season, and I said to Brian, I said, it was a cult. And he's like, oh, yeah, totally. It was a cult. And we were like, okay. That's really interesting. I'd been in another group when I'd been younger, and I was happy to call them a cult. Yet for some reason, I didn't want to call this second group a cult just because they weren't as bad. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting because I actually remember asking you that question. I remember asking you, um, would you say it was a cult? And you said that, I think. I remember you saying the previous groups, yes, but um, you were you were a bit um, wary. And I, I get that, to be honest, because I think the word cult comes with a lot of baggage. And in a way, I'd be happy never to use the word because it is 
it's not a well-defined term. It's not a scientific term. And it is, it's also a pejorative. So it's kind of what people call groups that they don't like, you know, or, or even a belief system they don't like. It just becomes just a, a term of abuse. Um, and that's a bit of a problem in a way. I'd be happy not to use the word, but you can't avoid it because it is what people know. So you have to kind of go along with it. But I guess put in all those qualifiers, like what do I mean by that? Well, it's a cult because if we define cult as this high control, big penalty for leaving, high demand of your time, coercive practices, you know, if it's got all these things, then that's what we mean when we say a cult. So in a way, you have to go through that little bit of qualifying or definition to to be clear. But yeah, that's really interesting that you've, you've kind of come to that, uh, come to that view. We've seen the light, Stephen. And, and maybe it was you that planted the seed. I mean, maybe we have you to thank for us to actually coming around. But, but we also, you know, today, we haven't just got you on as a, a, a co-host of your podcast, but your background as an organisational psychologist. And obviously, you've delved into this space more and had a look at, you know, that definition of cult and the behaviours that people exhibit, but behaviours that cults exhibit as well and the the tactics they use and the methods that they use to firstly convince people that what they're saying is true to keep you in there and then when you leave, a whole range of tactics. So we really do want to talk to you about those things. You touched on defining a cult just a minute ago and you were saying it is a pejorative term, but also... Are there good cults? Are there positive cults? Or are they all negative? Yeah, so that is, again, this is one of the, the tricky bits with, with the words. Uh, there is a sense in which we use the word cult in, in different settings. I mean, we, we sometimes talk about a film, you know, having a cult following or a band uh, having a cult following. So we don't always use it, I think, in a pejorative term. Uh, sometimes we, we use the word cult to mean a very small... A, a, an exclusive, quite small band of enthusiasts, I suppose. You know, these are these are people who are absolutely mad about Star Trek or mad about this particular type of whiskey or, or whatever. You know, and it's um, it, it's kind of got some cultic elements in that these are people that are very enthusiastic about a single thing, and they come together. They have all that in common. So, in that, I think that sense of a cult is. Um, is something that we we sort of accept and and we don't see it as dangerous. Positive cults, again, it, it depends how you how you define it. I I think the way most experts on cults, um, and I don't really call myself an expert on cults. Um, I'm not sure anybody knows enough personally about the phenomenon yet. Um, and obviously, I happy to let other people call themselves experts but i feel that it's it we still need to learn a heck of a lot about them but most most people think about cults as a dimension on which organizations lie rather than a single point so you know you might get some groups that are quite cultic or quite culty if you like and others that are clearly cults and then others that have some cultic elements so you have extremes on uh, I guess where you you can say well that's definitely a cult and then there's others that just have cultic tendencies but if you look at any organization and this is what I find interesting about 
the area of organizational psychology is cults do what most organizations do. So if you think about what organizations do, let's think about a workplace, for instance. They recruit people. They have rules and expectations of what people are going to do when they join the organization. There are sanctions if you don't follow the rules. You know, you you get punished in some respects. It could be you get a a warning or a written warning or you might face the sack. A very clear goal, perhaps, of what you want to achieve Um, in your job. You have a role that is there to fulfill the organization's goals. So all of these things are the same things that cults do. And there is even a certain amount of coercion. As I've said, in in the workplace, you, you know, you have certain punitive measures if you don't do certain things and there's expectations that you will put in a a shift and so on um but obviously there is a a more transactional contractual arrangement in that situation however it is you know it still has a lot of those those elements to it so a cult isn't that different to that in fact it does all the same things but of course it it takes it to often it takes it to an extreme and it also uses coercive pressure on people in a way that you would say is unethical so there are certain things that the cults are doing that you wouldn't expect an organization to do but the setup's the same actually you know in many respects um, which I think is really interesting and that's why when I started to study organizational psychology it kind of occurred to me that I'm not saying I'm the first one to notice this because there are others but I think a lot of the study of cults has been carried out by people in the therapeutic fields who have helped people out of cults. So their perspective is very much about individuals, how they've coped afterwards and how they get better suffering some sort of PTSD or spiritual abuse, however you want to describe it. But there's a whole whole field of study there around the organisation and how it works that is, is not really given all that much attention so that's the bit that I think is quite interesting and there's lots to do in that field I think. It's interesting that you you talk about this because I do work for a large multinational corporate I am quite happy to work there I'm not going to say anything about anything being culty (laughs) but sometimes you do see people you do see dynamics you do see Mm. things going on where you think oh that looks familiar especially when you've got this this brand or this goal. But I do think that the big difference is there's more transparency. You know, we're selling a product um, and that's all it is. And, and you, can, you can give your life over to this company as much as you want, but there are tangible returns in doing so. Oftentimes, the harder you work, you, you, there, is, there is a track to continue your career, to get more money, to get more perks. And you can happily move from one multinational to another whereas in cults it's not really like that I mean you can have a a group down the road that's almost identical to them and they will be seen as worse than than the Catholics or whatever yeah that's that's true although you know there is a there is sometimes a a quite strong feeling of identity with your organization and sometimes you know somebody leaves and goes to your main competitor there is a sense of betrayal you know they've gone they've gone there you know and that's that I think there is a sometimes there is a feeling of that something to throw in here guys that might be of interest is 
see what you're what you're describing i would describe it as a transactional relationship so in organizational psychology sometimes or leadership sort of studies we talk about transactional leadership and transactional relationships are obviously when you okay i've got some labor that i'm willing to give i've got some skills that i have that i've developed through my career and then i essentially sell those skills and that labor to my employer who needs those skills and that labor and so we have a transaction it's mutually beneficial i want to be paid the company wants to use my skills so this is a transactional arrangement and that's the way work has been for many many years and there's a kind of interesting trap here that i've talked about on my podcast quite a bit we've had sort of specials on this but there is a bit of a trap that's that's arisen over the last few years leadership studies and people sort of talking about leadership has encouraged a much more transformational type of leadership so if you think about the old-fashioned leader it was you know do what you're told very kind of militaristic in its approach you know i'm in charge this is what i want you to do you need to do it by three o'clock this afternoon and it's a command and control sort of structure but i guess a more enlightened and more progressive field has has been saying well can we not make the workplaces more engaging and more interesting and actually give people more power over what they're doing and this has led us to encourage what we now call transformational leadership what they used to call charismatic leadership which is is really about saying well how can we get people so that they really want to do this job and actually they don't leave their brains at the door when they come in they actually engage with what they're doing and they really want to be part of it and they really identify themselves with this organization so that they are willing to go the extra mile and put the extra in and really believe in it and so on and that really sounds great and I've been one of the proponents of that because you know I want if I'm working in a place, I want to feel that I can contribute and I really want to be part of something interesting and good. But there is a trap there that I think we can fall into, which is that that actually is much more like the way a cult works. Because if you think about how cults work, they often have a charismatic leader, at least in the beginning. And they that charismatic leader is able to generate enthusiasm. A lot of the literature actually uses charismatic and transformational as kind of one and the same type of leadership so you can think about what that means but the ability to really transform people's way of thinking and to make them really part of this organization that's much more like a what a cult does so i think that there's some risks in the way that we've we've pushed transformational leadership so there's got to be a happy medium somewhere but I think we shouldn't I suppose the point I'm making is we mustn't lose that transactional element because that's actually where the power of the worker can push back because without that if you if you join a company and actually you don't care about your salary that you just want to work for it because you love it so much you've lost all power over that relationship it's only the fact that you you are the the person with those skills and and the doing the labor that gives you any power in that relationship as soon as that's gone the management the organization has control over you and that's really what happens in cults there is a risk there 
I just I wonder where that fine line is, like when you talk. And the reason, you know, I wonder that as well is because I know people that have consultancies that work with corporations around that transformational leadership and definitely getting more out of their workforce. But also, you know, there's a reciprocation there. Absolutely, as you say. I know that they also train ministers, pastors, church staff in those same methods. And I just wonder, is it a conscious thing that they're training them in those same methods, however, for a different outcome? Is is it intentional, I guess, is what I'm getting at? And I, I don't know. I don't know if you know. I don't know if any of us know. But I think it's a question that's got to be asked. I mean, intentions are always difficult to... Um... You know, it's impossible really to to get into somebody's head. I work in this sector too, and and I, I you know I do management development programs in commercial organisations, and I'm I'm always keen for the leaders that I train to 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 use the skills to create clear goals and a vision, and help people to see that their part in that and their role in that. So I I think. I can certainly speak for myself. My my own feeling is that I think it's a good thing to do that. But I think there's just a, uh, we just need to make sure that we don't lose that, as I said, that transactional element. Remember, I suppose, we need to remember that the people in the workplace, they have their own needs, their own goals. And there is a, there is a transaction going on here. Um, I mean, there's, there's been some fairly, high profile examples of businesses that have become quite culty um the organization we work it's under new management now i don't know if you've heard of that that business but quite quite a well-known case uh, I, I guess it's different now but if you look at some of the reporting around how that organization worked it was very much around you know do everything here live in our properties do your washing here drop your kids off in the crash go to the gym here it was all it wasn't just we work it was we live you know we we do everything in this group so it started off as a as a place where you could rent a desk basically it was a, you know an office space that you could rent but in the end you know when you ask the the leader of that of that business what what are you trying to achieve straight away he would answer we're going to change the world there's a grandiosity there that comes along with that. So, you know, I think that's a good example of how just a very simple idea, a business can turn into something. Um, if you don't, if you lose sight of the fact that there is a transaction here, that actually is your business, sure, or it's an organization, but there are people that have their own needs and their own agendas, and you need to leave space for that too. That's, I guess, where the line is, but it's not, it's not an obvious line. So Stephen, tell us then from your research over the, you know, the last number of years, or even since you left the Jehovah's Witnesses, what have you learned about these methods of control that cults use to bring people in, to maintain them, to, to get them to do what they want? And there must also be some level of transaction there. You know, we're getting something from cults. Tell us what you've learned about that. Yeah, so I think I think I've only learned these things fairly recently. So I left uh, my group, Jehovah's Witnesses, oh, about twenty five years ago now, really. So you know, it's been a long time since I left, and I guess like a lot of people, 
I've not really thought about it very much. I've tried to get on with my life, look forward as everybody says that you should do and all of those things. So that's what I did. And that's, that's why I worked hard on my career and, um, you know, got the degrees and on all of that sort of thing. And so that's what I tried to do. But I think, well, two things happened. One was that I started for some reason, I started to engage with ex Jehovah's witness content um online which i'd never done before so i started to watch videos and listen to some people talking about their experience and what was going on because i'd kind of just separated from it altogether so was this decades after you left yeah absolutely we're talking about five years ago really so yeah absolutely two decades after i'd left really suddenly I just stumbled across some YouTube videos and it just tweaked my interest, really. I thought, oh, that's what's going on now, is it? It was all to do with the finances, the way that the Kingdom Halls had changed in terms of the way that the organisation sort of managed those assets. So it's fairly, I suppose for many, it would be fairly dull, but I just found that fascinating and, and the way that it was done was fascinating. So I stumbled across that and that tweak my interest and then the other thing that happened was I I started my master's in organizational psychology I started to read the papers that you have to read when you're doing these things and the very first module was all about work as a calling and that just really got my goat it kind of annoyed me quite a lot because it sounded so religious I thought I've come on a you know a secular course we're talking about organizational psychology what are you bringing this in for i then i asked my i asked myself why am i so angry about that why has that upset me so much you know um and it kind of made me realize that i was still processing a lot of that stuff and thinking about it quite a lot so much so that it had kind of made me angry and i thought well i kind of need to look into this so when i first started the the degree the masters i um I actually did it purely for work. So it's purely for the fact that I was uh, a leadership trainer. I worked in organizations as a consultant and trainer and coach. So that's why I did it, because it, it made sense for me to do that for my work. But as I was doing it, it kind of made me realize that, yeah, actually, this so much of this is relevant to the organization that I grew up in. We used to call it the organization. You know, that was that was what we called it and so I started to really get interested in the way that that sort of aligned and all, all the stuff I've, I've sort of said at the, at the top so what I've learned doing that over those sort of five years or so think about it I think is the systematic way that cults operate so I think that's the first thing that I didn't know before I didn't really appreciate how systematic it is whether there is a kind of deliberate evil genius at the top of a cult I think is questionable I think you will get those but a lot of cults don't have an evil genius at the top they have a charismatic person often who is able to bend people to their will and inspires enthusiasm and interest and is just so so wonderful to people's eyes that they want to be near them and a part of them and be like them so you get that but I'm not sure a lot of those people are the evil genius that's planning the system that they're going to put in place but cults almost like an algorithm that isn't conscious but is still really effective it's like that you know cults are like an algorithm that 
that manipulates people in very specific ways. And that's why you see cults that are religions, but you also see cults that are... In the UK, we've had a recent scandal about a life coaching organisation, a cult. You know, it's got exactly the same stuff. You see it in situations of the military sometimes. You see it in situations of multi-level marketing. You see it in relationships. Just two people can... You can see those dynamics there when one of the partners is coercively controlling the other. So these are actually very systematic processes. What do they do? They promise you something that is so good. Everlasting life, going to heaven, eternal bliss, personal transformation, transcendence, generally getting your shit together whatever it is that you really want that you've never been able to achieve or that you didn't think was possible, they promise that with whatever guise that is. So that's the first thing. And it's it's obviously not true. So it's a con. At the heart of it is a con. You are being promised something that is not possible to deliver through that call. But that's the first thing. So there's that con. Oh, it, it, except for evangelical Christianity, that's that's true. <laughs> <laughs> let's just let's just be clear on that because that's not a cult, right? right? Well, this is the amazing thing. You know, we're always really great at spotting other cults. Every cult member is brilliant at spotting what a cult looks like, apart from their own. They're going to take the log out of their own eye, don't they, Stephen? Indeed, yes. Hey, Brian, it's US summer right now. And I reckon we could take the bite out of summer with HelloFresh. From chef-crafted seasonal recipes to their new fresh and fit summer menu, HelloFresh is going to bring flavour right to your door. And talking about flavours, summer crowd-pleasing eats. From backyard bratwurst bar to tangy key lime pie. I love key lime pie. That is definitely a family favourite. HelloFresh Market makes summer entertaining a cinch. It's an easy one. So now, being the peak time for summer produce and HelloFresh, make sure you get all the best picks all season long. And I love how HelloFresh saves us time. And it also helps us just not worry about recipes because it's all there. We just follow it. Everything we need is easy and fast. That's right. Even you and I can follow it. And that is saying a lot, isn't it? So go to HelloFresh.com slash Teenage50 and use the code Teenage50 for 50% off plus free shipping. So that's go to HelloFresh.com slash Teenage50 and use the code Teenage50 for a massive 50% off plus free shipping. America's number one meal kit. Are you doubting your religious beliefs? Having questions about changing or leaving your faith? Well, you're not alone, and Recovering From Religion is here to help. Learning how to live after questions, doubts, and changing your religious beliefs is a journey. The people at Recovering From Religion are intimately familiar with this path and are there to help you cross that bridge. Their passion is connecting others with support, resources, community, and most of all, hope. They offer both peer and professional support. Find out more by visiting recoveringfromreligion.org or find the links in our show notes. Hey, my name is Bart Campolo 
And if you've listened to this podcast for very long, you may already know who I am because I was a guest on this very show. I was a professional evangelical for a very long time before figuring out that I didn't believe in God anymore. And here's the deal. For the better part of a decade now, I've had my own podcast for people like me, people like you, people who are interested in what life looks like after faith. On Humanize Me, we try to figure out how to make sense of things when you don't believe in God anymore, where I talk to artists and scientists and activists and writers, all of whom are sort of wrestling with this question, like how do we make meaning? How do we build better relationships? How do we cultivate gratitude and wonder for the privilege of existence? How do we make things better for other people in a thoroughly secular way? If you're interested in that kind of conversation, someday you might want to check out Humanize Me. And I hope you do. In the meantime, back to Brian and Troy. There's lots of wisdom in the Bible, isn't there? Of course. That's one of the the, the great things about ancient writings. You, you you hear lots of wisdom. Doesn't necessarily mean it's from God, of course. But yeah, so that's the first thing they do. They promise they promise the world. And because the person telling you is so convincing you go for it, or at least you start to dabble. You're interested. And then what happens is you're love-bombed. You you experience this wonderful feeling of community that you've never felt before. You go along to a meeting, you go along to a, a get-together, and people are so lovely. They're so brilliant. They're so intelligent. They're so focused. Not like I am, you know, I'd love to be more like that. And they love me. They think I've got the potential to be like them. Wow, that's brilliant. Why would I not want that? You know, and you feel comfortable, you feel relaxed, and you feel wanted. We all want to feel wanted. We all want to be needed. They key into our psychological need to feel important and valued and seen. And that's what they do. We have this, these basic psychological needs for community, for feelings of empowerment, for feelings of being needed. So, yes, again, these are appealing to normal psychological needs. So, OK, that's the next stage. And then what happens after that is you start to recognize that there's things that are demanded of you if you want to be like this group or if you want to find this peace or this happiness or if you want to live forever on paradise or if you want to make sure you have a seat next to Jesus all of these things come with a bit of a cost and you we're used to that we know that nothing is for nothing so okay we we accept that there is going to be a cost and so gradually nothing's for nothing except for unconditional love of course Stephen well (laughs) well I mean and that's the thing this is yeah you know I mean Troy put together a great meme I think it was last year it was you know unconditional love or Jesus loves you conditions imply apply or something well I don't know yeah let's let's get it right Brian I know Jesus loves you unconditionally (laughs) asterisk asterisk conditions apply Yes, well done, and I hope you edit my fuck and, up. And look, I, I no, no, I'm going to leave that in, and because I, I like it when you make mistakes, because it means you're human. But I, I was listening to you then for a moment there, Stephen, and what you were saying sounds like it's moving into a more transactional approach. It's becoming more contractual. It's like if if you want to be a part of this, if you want all this transformational awesomeness, yeah. you yeah. do actually need to live by the rules yeah and that's because 
we're not worried about that. It doesn't that doesn't ring any alarm bells for us because we're used to that. We're used to that in everyday life. You know, we know that if we want something, that we have to give something. If you want that new car, then you you have to work hard to get the money, and then you hand the money over and you get the car. You know, we're we're used to that in our society. Therefore, when a group says, "If you want this," You're going to have to work, do this thing or that thing. We just we just accept that. So yes, I think there is a an acceptance, or we think it's a transactional arrangement in that respect. But as we're going through this, we're becoming more dependent upon the group. So at the same time, the group is probably cutting us off or encouraging us to have less to do with our friends and family. Now, this is something that in the workplace doesn't normally happen, but it can happen in certain situations so again in the case that's been in the news in the UK that was very much happening so the coaches would say to people oh you know your 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 partner's part of the problem you know with with her you're never going to achieve your goals because she's holding you back and you get the same thing with religions you know or cultic religions they'll say things like you don't want to associate too much with worldly people or people in the world because they don't they don't love Jehovah or they don't love Jesus or they're they're not Christian. If you associate with these things, you know, as a youth we used to get um, bad associations spoil useful habits, which is the a uh, New World Translation, the Jehovah's Witness Bible version of a of a, a text, and that meant basically don't associate with people in in the world so go to school yes but don't go around their house afterwards the real bible says bad company corrupts good morals that was actually yeah. what what we were taught and you know as we know jehovah's witnesses wrong bible try to find out who who the scholars are who um who were involved in the production of the new world translation and uh, good luck with that yeah they're probably uh, all left task. now so possibly they'd, so they've been erased from existence <laughs> but then they, they never did publish that so we have no idea what qualifications the... so it's interesting though Stephen because these verses do exist in the bible like that one you know bad company yeah. corrupts good morals do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers mm. this is yep. actually there in the text and and this is yep. something that I like to come back to often that it's not just are oh, these bad people taking this wonderful text a lot of this stuff's there in the text I mean it was there in the at, at the foundation of these religions yeah and i put my um i i readily admit that you know i am a i'm an atheist in in practice i suppose an agnostic in in if i'm being absolutely truthful with myself so that's where i'm coming from but i think if you look at certainly the old testament this was about a, a nation essentially saying any other any other nation any other peoples are dangerous keep away from them so a lot of the passages are you know don't be unevenly yoked uh, we used to use that in terms of don't get married to somebody who's not a jehovah's witness so you know don't uh, don't associate with people that are not serving god don't don't go to parties don't have association with them unless you absolutely have to like at work for instance but you know it's all very it's hard not to see it as racist, essentially, because it's, you know, those Moabite women, they're terrible. Um, these Canaanites, they are all evil. Let's kill them all because they are all wicked. So that's essentially what what you get in the Old Testament. Um, of course, that's controversial, I, I know, but that's that's the way I, I see it. So you have all these 
these texts. Yeah, th- this is in the Bible, isn't it? So it's like a lot of things. You can work hard to try to deny it is actually what the Bible says, but but it it is there. And and the word that, the word you're looking for, I think the the more sanitized term than saying racist is it was tribal. Right, you can say, "Oh, they were the tribes yeah. against each other because you know they were they were all still Semitic people ar- around each other." So I think that's the safer the safer road to walk. But it's funny because I think the Christian Church took a lot of those behaviors and a lot of those tribal beliefs: don't eat with such a one, you know, don't be unequally yoked, all that kind of stuff. And and we do we do see that that it's it's a hundred percent there. It's an us and them mentality. But I think once upon a time when the ancient Hebrews were writing this, the the external tribes were a threat. They were a militaristic social threat. They would come, they would kill you, steal you, whatever, rape you, whatever. That's what they did. And so you can understand where they're coming from. And if, as you would imagine, there's, as you've probably heard, I should say, there's the idea that that's where racism comes from, that when we see the different that from an evolutionary psychology perspective, we've actually learned to mistrust that look, which looks different because once upon a time that was a genuine threat. Yeah. I mean, it's got, it's got really deep roots. One of the, the seminal pieces of work on this is, is Henri Teichfeld with his minimal differences experiments. I don't know if you've come across this before, but this is, this is going back a few years really, but, but he did, um, he did some experiments with people to see whether or what, in what conditions could you create an us and them situation? And he got, um, there were, there were young guys, actually young boys really that he, he used as the participants, but he got one group to answer a bit of a questionnaire and, and another, well, both groups to answer some questionnaires. And on the basis of these questionnaires, he said to them, you like Kandinsky paintings. And to the other group, he said, you like Klee paintings. I mean, there was actually no truth in that. There was no basis on that. It just was it just was a label he gave them. And uh, I mean, the, the paintings, Kandinsky and Klee, obviously they're different styles, but they're both sort of impressionist artists. Completely meaningless. And that's that's the minimal group experiment that it gets called because the, the groups themselves have minimal differences. He just kind of created them out of nothing. But even that, as soon as you create a group, you start to favor your in-group as opposed to your out-group. So it's very, very easy to create these tensions between groups. It's part of our human nature. So, yeah, I mean, obviously that's where tribal behavior comes from. And and I guess, yes, going back far enough, it, it relates to kin favor. You know, you're going to favor your kin your your relatives if you think about evolutionary psychology then you know your essentially your behavior is related to whether you pass on your genes or not and so in small villages that would be your village these are people that are all related to you therefore you are in with them and so that behavior gets selected for and that's why we have it so yeah it, it has deep roots it's absolutely it is part of part of our nature but doesn't mean we we shouldn't push against it i think and i think that within high control groups within cults whatever i mean they certainly use those tactics of separation keep people away from the other you know stay away from the world it'll corrupt you because they've got to maintain that wall of the other is bad and if you let them too close they'll discover they're not bad and you know i find 
I've, I've seriously lost count of the amount of times where I've had a conversation with people and, and it'll be the other is bad, whether it's Muslim or Indigenous people, you know, someone who votes for another party which they've got an issue with or whatever, or a trans person. And I generally say to them, when was the last per- uh, time you had a conversation with a Muslim person? Oh, I don't have to because what I read, what I see, and what my mate told me, my mate told me that Muslims, you know, they, they do this and that. And I think that's how we maintain that. We keep, you know, we're kept from each other. We're kept from finding out what is really happening. Yeah, absolutely. And as you say, it is in the in the cult's interest to do that. It's also in any organisation's interest if they want to create a sort well again the word tribal is is there a tribal sort of feeling if you're interested in football soccer you've heard of Alex Ferguson he was the manager of Manchester United one of the most successful football teams I was raised as a Manchester City fan so always the enemy as far as I was concerned but he was well known for creating this us and them scenario you know it was us against everybody else and he would indoctrinate his players in that feeling that, you know, everybody's out to get us. Everybody hates us. And again, organisations, cults often do play up the persecution card. You know, that's often, you know, we were told over and over again that we would face persecution at some point because the world hates us. Again, that is in the Bible. The world will hate you. So there is a feeling that I need to, we need to, to stay close to our own because the rest of the world hates us. Again, very, very culty sort of feeling. But it, again, it plays to our natural psychology, uh, which is why cults do it. I'm a fairly avid Australian rules football fan. You know, I go to, to most matches. I, I follow it very closely. And I'm maybe accused of being a little bit fanatical sometimes. And But it's interesting. I'm not a one-eyed supporter. And I know people that all the others are bad. And it's really interesting within the group, the group of supporters where I'll say, oh, I like that team. And I'm talking about another team. They're like, you fucking what? You like that team? (laughs) The reaction you get is you can't like them. They're the enemy. They're the other. They're the people who are going to tear apart. You know, so it's really interesting, those dynamics and how they do play out in sport. And that's exactly what Stephen was just saying, because it's it's a minimal difference. Like, really, there is no difference between being a Manchester uh, City supporter or a Manchester United supporter or a Hawthorne supporter or a Carlton supporter. There is absolutely no difference. It's just a choice that you make to be a part of one of these teams. As a matter of fact, talking about that in terms of control, showing our age, do you remember the 1970s BBC kids drama called The Tomorrow People? I do remember that. Yeah, it was a sci-fi show. It was very, very much like sort of Doctor Who. But there was an attempt by its alien race to take over humanity. And what they did was they they came into all the different groups of young people and they gave some a yellow badge and some a red badge. And then slowly over time, and I bet you it was based on this this uh, research that you were talking about because they were obviously quite bright. You know, they were British and worked for the BBC. But <laughs> what happened was... It turned into violence. It turned into assault. It was just full on as these two groups started to oppose one another. And basically the idea was the aliens were using it to to disempower or to confuse humanity and then sweep in and, of course, the tomorrow people save the day. But it is interesting because the point is you can look at it and say, is this what the cult is doing? 
they're distracting us. Or look, let's let's take it even broader. You know, is this what the the political party are doing, or is this what QAnon is doing, or whatever? They're distracting us, creating in us and their mentality. So we're not looking at what they're doing. We're not looking at what the leaders are doing. We're too busy worried about the threat. Yeah, I I think that's right. And again, um, how much is being done on purpose? Like your example of the aliens coming in with the uh, the token. That's obviously being done with knowledge and on purpose. And how much is just being done? through algorithms um i use that term again um i'm becoming more and more interested and slightly afraid of the discussion around ai but if you think about youtube as an example of a an algorithm that separates people out into groups i mean you know youtube's a great example of a you get this recommender algorithm that recommends the next video and then you watch that and before you know it you have either hardened your opinions or you've maybe gone down a particular rabbit hole that you didn't expect and suddenly you you're you're sort of much more sympathetic to a a way of thinking that you didn't appreciate and that in itself can create division i mean twitter i've always called twitter a a big sorting hat you know the harry potter films at the beginning when he goes into hogwarts um they have to put this sorting hat on to determine which house they're going to be a part of is it going to be slytherin or hufflepuff or whatever and actually that's what twitter is doing it's it's separating us all into our own little bubbles and that's done through through algorithms and i think that's kind of what's happening but again because it plays to our natural in-group, out-group um, psychology, it's very, very easy to do that. And of course, this is what cults have been doing for many, many years. It's us versus them. They're terrible. We're, um, we are the chosen people. And as you quite rightly said, the difference is very, very small, actually. I mean, we've had in in Europe and in the UK and Ireland, of course, particularly, we've had people killing each other over protestant or catholic beliefs you know and for anybody looking at those two religions an alien coming and watching that would say what is the difference you know minimal difference there it is minimal difference yeah but it's it's enough to create that suspicion and and hatred and and of course yeah cults use that so they are very very clever if you like at using those psychological tendencies we have to create those those systems so that's why i say these are systems that cults cults are essentially using a system of control and that's it is systematic which is why you can apply it to lots of different groups what about then Stephen, leadership dynamics the way that the organizations are structured and also the authority because one of the things that i find in my life is having been in two cults, two high control groups, I still catch myself deferring to authority simply because that person is in that position. And in my mind, um, sometimes it's not even conscious. I will be, but but I'll, I'll be aware of it later where I think they're just a person. Why did I think that this person knew more? It's like I get to sort of peek behind the curtain later on and realize they were never above me, ever. And yet in my mind for a number of years, simply because of the office they held, totally they were above me. Yeah, I mean this is a this is a fascinating area that we've talked about on our podcast quite a bit. And we've, you know, we we've only scratched the surface of it, but it all relates to power and authority. We've had a 
a two-parter recently around the question of authority. You know, if you think about authority, you can think about that word in terms of who has the power to tell you what to do. So in a cult, we give that authority to the leader and therefore, yeah, when we leave, we may well, I guess, defer to leadership. Sometimes it goes the other way, by the way. You know, I've, I see quite a lot of ex-cult members basically rejecting any authority, including including authority of experts, let's say, people who... Um, so this is more of a, an authority in terms of who should you believe, who has credibility. But yeah, there's um, it's a fascinating question of, of the use of authority and power. In, organiser, in religions and uh, in cults in particular... Um, the authority is is taken by the cult leader, the group leader. So one of the things that I think is really important for us to understand about cults is the use of power and the monopolization of power. In a way, you could describe cults just in terms of the monopolization of power within a group. That's an alternative way to define it. So a lot of definitions use a kind of tick box exercise. But another definition could be that it's the monopolization of power within a group and actually that's what they do they monopolize power so we in in organizational psychology we talk about power in different ways so you have different types of power you know you have legitimate power which is the power that a boss might have a manager might have the legitimate power the legitimacy comes from the fact that they've been given the job as manager manager is in their job title Therefore, I accept that they have that power over me to tell me what to do. In a cult, that is total. That is unquestioned. And the legitimacy may even come from God or the universe, you know. So it's hard to get bigger than that. So, you know, that's where the legitimate power comes from. But there's other types of power in organisations. You get things like referent power, which is the power that people have over us that we like. You know, if I like you, you've got some power over me because I like you. Again, the leader has masses amount of referent power, especially if they're charismatic. So they they you love the leader. They're brilliant. They're amazing. They they are so clever. They have all the skills. They have all the knowledge. Therefore, I love them and I want to be like them. That's referent power. Again, they monopolize that. It's all about the leader. You have knowledge. Uh, or informational power. These are coming from a, a, a research from French and Raven's power bases. So this is another organizational psychology thing, but it's just fascinating to see um, informational power. You know, one of Stephen Hassan's bite model elements there is the, the control of information. So again, in cults, they control information. All the power of information and knowledge comes through the leader. It's totalistic. It's it is the monopolization of power. And that's, I think, one of the definitions of of how cults operate. It, it's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, you look at the, the workplace and, you know, since the Industrial Revolution, we've seen the rise of unions. So unions go in, they advocate to make sure that we, we do have a buffer from that line and we do have a bit of a, a work-life balance, better conditions. We have advocates. Uh, I mean, look, the role of unions has changed over time, definitely, but they most certainly played a, a key role in that 38-hour week. You don't have that when you're inside a cult. You don't have that advocacy. And here we are as three guys looking back 
who were all involved in cults. And we're looking back and we're going, fuck, what was it that kept us in there? So what was it, Stephen? Why couldn't we just get up and leave? Why wasn't it as easy as that? Power is important because it's powerful, <laughs> you know, to use a, a sort of double speak. Max Weber is, is well known as a as a, an authority on lots of things around organisations. And he calls power the probability that one actor within a social relationship will be in a position to carry out his own will despite resistance. And if you think about it like that, then it, that answers your question. Why is it we are controlled by these people? Well, because they have greater probability that what they want, we will do. And the method of, of doing that is, is through all these coercive practices. On a practical level, if you're raised in it, I don't know whether you guys, I think you were raised in a sort of Christian no, we both came in as teenage fundamentalists, okay. which is why we named the course, podcast. Of course, yeah. I should have known that, shouldn't I? So if you're born like I was born into it. So for me, it was all I knew. So again, it's a very, very easy to understand situation where you are. It's like the old joke, you know, a fish. One fish says to the, how's the water? And the other fish says, what's water? This is, this is the problem. You know, you don't know. You fish don't know that water exists it is just the world in which they live and that is what it is like if you're raised in a cult because it is the way that life is it is your own reality so that's that's the reason why it's hard to leave i think when you're raised in it you are so steeped in it that everything your whole world view is is through the lens of this group the way you've been taught hey Stephen, i'll just stop you there because i want to tell you a story i remember when i was teaching i was teaching grade one and there was a little jehovah's witness boy in my class and of course i was told you've got to watch out for him you know birthday parties he has to leave christmas things you know all that so that's why it was known and i remember the kids sitting around one day and we were talking in a group they were just asking random questions and then one kid says where does the world come from and the little Jehovah's Witness boy just said, at the most confident thing I'd ever heard him say, he says, oh, that's an easy one because that's all he'd known. So as soon as that, the, the lens or, or a question that fit that lens, bang. And he was, you know, he was six years old. He was like, oh, that's an easy one. He didn't say, but he's just telling everyone in the room, I know that one. Yeah, and the confidence, uh, I've told this story uh, on our podcast, but, you know, when I was, I must have been, before going to school. So I went to school at five years old. So I must have been very, very little. But I remember a, a workman coming down round to paint our bathroom and um, he he went out for a smoke. And I said, um, you shouldn't smoke. It's, it's naughty to smoke. And he said, well, don't your parents smoke? And I said, no, because they know what's right. Obviously a precocious little git as I was. You know, it was just obvious to me that was the right thing to do, the wrong thing to do, and this was the truth. We called it the truth. There is that language thing, of course, that cults use. So I was born into the truth, we used to say. And when people left Jehovah's Witnesses, they've left the truth. Uh, when did you come into the truth? It's all all the language, the way that language is used, fascinating stuff. So it is literally the the water in which you swim. You you you've it's very difficult to uh, to see out of that. Of course, it's not impossible, and that's why people like me do leave. For when you join, yeah, it's a really a really interesting question. I, I think there still is an element of 
um, I suppose the frog boiling in a pot. You know, you before you know it, you are into something, and your your thoughts. There's a good reason why Lifton calls the whole thing thought reform. So your thinking has been changed. Your the way that you you value things, the way that you see the world. The Germans have this word Weltanschung, which I love, um, which is this way of seeing the world and that's what you see you your thinking has been changed and even as teenagers you're still quite you're still quite young you haven't developed all your critical thinking faculties at that point but of course people do join cults at many different ages so it's a very good question and I don't think we fully know the answer to it it's to do with partly the coercion that comes along with it so sometimes people stay in cults because they're afraid to leave because if they do, they might lose their family or their friends or the community that they know. So a big reason why people stay in is because of community, because it's it's the only life they know. It's their friends, it's their family, it's their, it is their community. So that is another big reason, I think, why people stay. I think the beliefs are a big part of it too, you know, especially when you're thinking that there's eternal consequences to this, you know, whether it's missing out on the first resurrection or whether it's you know, not going to heaven and eternal hell. I know the Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, don't believe in in a hell, but there is still an eternal consequence for leaving. Yeah, and, and I think there's something here about individual psychology that relates to this. So I think for some people, they stay, I think people stay and leave sometimes for different reasons. And, and I've noticed that they I've not done research about this, so this is just my opinion, but there's, there seems to be, you fall into one of two camps. You Let's go with the leaving. You either leave because, like me, I started to doubt those beliefs. I started to doubt those doctrines. And I, I started to ask questions like, do I really believe that God is going to destroy 8 billion people and I only leave Jehovah's Witnesses to live forever on earth, never dying? That didn't that didn't make any sense or that start I started to have grave doubts about that I mean when I say it now it sounds so obviously false but at the time I you know that's what I believe but I started to doubt those things so that's one avenue why people leave which is possibly an avenue why people join because they start to like the beliefs or they start to believe the beliefs another reason why people leave though I've noticed is that they fall out with somebody or they notice that people's behavior is not reflecting what they claim. So, you know, a Christian a Christian organisation, and yet you put up with this behaviour. It could be something really serious like child sex abuse, CSA, or it could be something relatively minor, like, you know, they were so rude or they stole some money off me or they it was a business arrangement that went wrong and the elders did nothing to to help me with it you know and how can this be god's organization if if so they're leaving not because of the beliefs but because of a social reason really they they start to doubt the community so i think there's two tracks there and for most people it seems to be one or the other and then the other one follows on afterwards you know you sort of you start to then see the weaknesses in the other um, except some people in the xjw community we have this term which you may be familiar with but um, physically out mentally in so we call it POMI and unfortunately some 
Jehovah's Witnesses leave, perhaps because of falling out with somebody or having a disagreement with the organisation itself, but they still believe the doctrines. I don't believe in purgatory, but I think that is the very definition of purgatory because they they are no longer in the organisation, but they believe that they're going to die at Armageddon. And um, that's horrible, horrible place to be. And then you've also got the PMOs, don't you? They're, they're physically in, but they're mentally out. They've actually stopped believing, yeah. but they know the social consequences of exactly. being shunned and family, et cetera. It's interesting because we know that there's a lot of that in our ex scene as well. There's a lot of ministers who are drawing a wage from this religion and yet they no longer believe it. Which I mean, in itself is a motivation to carry on doing it, isn't it? You know, so um, I, if I leave this, I, I, how do I pay the mortgage? You know, how do I, how do I feed my family? And it, it, that is a serious problem. Um, I mean, the other, the other reason is, of course, cognitive dissonance. We, we stay with something because, although we doubt it being true, we, we're trying to hold two things in our brain at the same time. It seems really unlikely, but we really want to believe it. So we start to find justifications for why we should believe it and why we should carry on doing it and so on. So we 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 find a, a psychological way of making peace with, okay, well, I, do, I don't really understand that bit. I don't really agree with that bit. And in fact, this was my journey. I liken it to a bag with lots of holes in it, you know. So first of all, you, I started to doubt this thing and then I started to doubt that thing and then started to doubt this other thing. And, but the cognitive dissonance is such that I'm trying to resolve all of that so I carry on going and carry on doing what I should do but eventually it became the bag became too full of holes I couldn't hold my faith together anymore and that's when I I left but that's another reason why people stay because they want to believe it they want to that's right I mean for a time it's brought them comfort it's brought them community all those you know all those positive things that we've spoken about before yeah absolutely I would actually argue and I, I, I do genuinely believe this, although I have absolutely no way to, to prove it, but I think the upper echelons of the Catholic Church, for example, I think there's a lot of those men that simply do not believe this, but they have given their whole lives. But you see it historically with popes, with mistresses and wives and children, and there's also the, the talk, oh, it's not even talk, it's 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 well documented of what they call the gay mafia inside the, the the upper levels of the Catholic Church, and so they're openly preaching against homosexuality, against you know sexual immorality or whatever you want to call it, and then at the same time they're living this sort of lifestyle. And I would even argue, and I realise that this is not something that I can prove as well, but I would even argue people like Brian Houston of Hillsong. I think there was a shift some years back where he really stopped preaching sort of traditional Pentecostalism and he even moved away from things like speaking in tongues and prophecy and he moved those all into their into the home groups as we call them you know the sort of when they people meet in homes and moved it away from the meetings and a lot of his sermons became self-help encouraging positivity kind of things and then his whole behavior really moved away from the traditional Pentecostal holiness and you know, we know now that he's taking his family for, you know, tens of thousands of dollars holidays into, you know, Mexico and, and all the things that, that he's doing. I would I would argue that there's a lot of people, as much as we want to say, yeah, there are people that genuinely believe it and and 
you know, they continue on. I think that there are a lot of people who it's it's just too good to to walk away from that. And so they will start preaching a a palatable version of the truth, but it's no longer the group's ideology that they're peddling anymore. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And and that reflects a, a certain awareness, doesn't it? Of if that's true, that reflects an awareness that the individual is 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 trying to struggle with, really. They're they're struggling with um, some articles of faith that that just seem too difficult to to hold on to. So part of the the, the way to resolve that is to change the message in in some way. Uh, there's also a you know the original work on cognitive dissonance by Leon Festinger was we've done an episode all about this quite a long time ago. We we found it absolutely fascinating because we read his book on the UFO cult that he infiltrated essentially and did some field work on actually fantastic information really really interesting ideas terrible research it's hilariously bad because he ends up becoming part of the group as well as some associates actually affecting the the things that the group were doing so terrible as a piece of research but brilliant in terms of its um, theory and conclusions i guess but he went on to do lots of other great things but that piece of research but anyway one of the things that he found was certain members after the ufo didn't come and take them all away which they were promised some of the members where previously they hadn't really done much preaching about it or they they didn't seem interested in proselytizing at all but as soon as the ufo didn't turn up and didn't take them all away some of them became really keen on proselytizing and that just seems like the opposite to what you think some left but others just double down on it. And that's the other thing that can happen. So if you're struggling with doubts, again, this this relates perhaps to your point about priests and, and uh, religious leaders having feelings towards same-sex relationships or even sexual relationships full stop in, as, in the Catholic sense. Although they have these feelings, they'll they'll double down on it and actually more vociferously preach against it because that's how they can ease this cognitive dissonance a bit like those ufo cultists who it was obvious it didn't turn up you know you can't get much more obvious than that but even that wasn't enough to change their mind they preached more and that's that's sometimes what we see well, here we are 2,000 years later and Jesus hasn't come back and look at uh, evangelicalism and and Christianity in general. You know, it's it's certainly within a, the Pentecostal realm and evangelicalism is not getting any smaller. Stephen, if there's been someone today who's listening, it feels like an altar call I'm about to do, but if, if somebody has is, is listened <laughs> today and gone, oh, I'm still involved in this stuff, this is sort of picking up on a few things that I've been thinking about recently. What's your advice for them? What do they do with what they've heard you say today? What are their next steps? That's a really difficult question to answer, really. I think I would first of all say that I don't I think everybody's journey is is their own. So I'm very loath to give people advice about how they they should or shouldn't either make a transition out of a group leave a group or stay you know this is a personal choice I suppose my best way to answer that would be to talk about my own experience so I sat on it for a while I thought about it for quite some time 
I'd had doubts for many years, but it, when I really decided to look into the doubts, it took a, a year really for me to start to tell others and make the decisions to do things. But I think giving yourself a bit of time to think about your questions. And I, I guess for me, giving myself permission to actually ask those questions and look into it. So one of the things that, that cults do is they discourage you looking at any other opinions or any other sources of knowledge so my group jehovah's witnesses are very clear you know don't go to worldly sources certainly don't listen to those apostates don't listen to anybody that says anything bad about the organization all that you need to know you can find out through the publications that we produce so that's that's how you do your studying so one of the things that you're always encouraged to do was make the truth your own which basically meant doing lots of studying and lots of reading but that was only reading and studying using the approved publications and a lot of groups are like this so I gave myself permission to read other sources to read in inverted commas worldly sources so I read things about evolution I read things about science and i i listened and i read stuff from people that uh, didn't believe in god and didn't believe jehovah's witnesses may have left jehovah's witnesses so i allowed myself to ask those questions without without deciding at that point that i didn't believe it i just thought well i want to know i want to actually understand and the the real reason i did it was because i wanted to prove to myself that my beliefs were true so actually that was my motivation was to once and for all get rid of these doubts by showing myself that it is the truth but allowing myself to do that research by using other sources helped me to realize that it it wasn't it clearly wasn't the truth so that's what worked for me but it can be a really difficult journey so I guess think of the consequences think about how you're going to manage those but first of all don't don't be afraid to ask those questions. Stephen thinking now that we're at basically the end of I like to say the end of time because it sounds like we're coming into Armageddon. <laughs> so here we are at the end of time. Stephen, tell folks how they can connect with your podcast and and how they can find out more. Because I think what I love about your podcast is you you do play with ideas, but you do bring this sort of organizational lens on a lot of what you you deal with. And I think there's some value in that because as you said, there's a lot of talk from a therapeutic side. And even our podcast, we will often talk about things like religious trauma and we'll, you know, we'll tell our stories. There's a lot of narrative. It's it's wonderful what you do with this sort of organizational lens. So tell us how do we find the Cult Hackers podcast? Yeah, thanks. So yeah, you can find Cult Hackers on all of the well all is a big word. Um, most, if not all, of the podcast apps, um, you know, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, all, all, all of them really, it's, it's available. It, we've got about 230, I think, episodes now up. So it's always fun to binge, you know, and if you listen to the older ones, they're still up there. You can listen to Celine and me, you know, when we're obviously just learning how to be a podcast and we're, we're sort of doing it as we go along and uh, we did it in initially during lockdown so we were in the same room together because Celine was living at home then and so it has a slightly different dynamic yeah there's lots of different subjects uh some of them are much more related to cults and others are a bit more 
a tangential to that, if you like. But um, yeah, check us out on on those platforms. Cultahackers.com is the website and you can send us a message through that as well if you want to talk to us. I'm also on, on Twitter. There is a Cult Hackers Twitter handle, but I'm... I'm known as Stevel Sheep. So if you look for Stevel Sheep, then you'll find me. I'm not as active on Twitter as I used to be, but I do I do dabble from time to time. So yeah, join me or follow me on that. It'd um, be great to talk to you. Lovely. Well, thank you so much. It's always great chatting to you, Stephen. And, and I know that we have stayed in contact ever since um, we came on your show and you came on ours. So it, it's been awesome to really connect with you guys, but to also see the evolution of your podcast and look, we ba- look back on some of our early ones too and sort of cringe a little bit, but um, <laughs> you know, you'll get better as time goes on. Thank you again for today. It, it really has been a pleasure and I think our listeners will get a lot from this. Well, Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, It's been brilliant. I really appreciate it. And I've really enjoyed our conversation. Definitely get you guys back on to talk more um, on our podcast as well. Yeah, it's it's great to to keep a bit of a, I don't know, community of podcasters, indie podcasters, as I like to call us. We're sort of battling for space in a massive ecosystem. Some of these podcasts are huge. So we're we're just a little guys, aren't we? Trying to uh, trying to find a voice, but it's it's brilliant to to keep in touch. Thank you again for inviting me. I've had a great time. Thank you. If you'd like to connect with the I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist podcast, then please see the links in our link tree in the show notes. We invite you to pop across to our very vibrant listener community on Facebook, which is a private group. And we're also on Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit. Also, a huge thank you to Lucy, who manages our social strategy, and to Kerry and Bree, who manage our Facebook listener group. All of our episodes are transcribed to increase accessibility, and the I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. It's produced and hosted by Brian McDowell and Troy Waller, with all sound production and editing done by Troy Waller. You can find all these links in our link tree in the show notes.